I'm happy to introduce tonight's speaker, Stephen Solomon. Mr. Solomon has written for the New York Times, Business Week, The Economist, Forbes, and Esquire. He has been a regular commentator on NPR's Marketplace and has appeared as a featured guest on many other news shows. He is the author of Water, The Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization, and The Confidence Game, which warned about building dangers in the volatile global financial system. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Stephen Solomon. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Um, thank you, Gregory. Thanks for taking time tonight from your busy schedule to contemplate that precious, clear liquid that many of us carry around with us uh, so religiously each day uh, in little bottles, and yet we sort of take for granted. And I'm talking about water, of course. Um, and just imagine also to imagine what we would do if we didn't have as much of it as we really need for all the things that we use it for, which by the end of this uh, discussion this evening, I hope you will realize it touches just about everything that's essential to our lives. Drinking and cleaning, growing food, producing energy, making virtually every single industrial product from steel bars to semiconductor chips, uh, even using it for avenues of transportation, and of course for the environment itself. The topic tonight is the greatest crisis that most Americans have never heard of, and that's global freshwater scarcity. In fact, today water is overtaking oil as human civilization's scarcest critical resource. And just as oil really transformed the history of the 20th century, freshwater scarcity is shaping the geopolitics, the economics, the environment, uh, the domestic politics, and the quality of everyday life uh, of the 21st century, and, and frankly, even more so, uh, because you can't drink oil and you can't grow food with it. It's indispensable. What essentially is happening is that under the duress of the rising population demands and the voracious demands of our industrial society that has been using water at twice the rate of population growth, which we know has been rather rapid too in the 20th century, quadruple, uh, and very important to keep in mind the very widespread inefficient uh, water use practices that we have uh, we've developed. More and more nations are outstripping their available, sustainable supply of fresh water. Now, what do I mean by uh, that phrase? Uh, very important. I mean the finite amount of water that continually self-renews through the natural process of precipitation um, and uh, evaporation that replenishes the rivers and the lakes and the shallow groundwater that has really been sufficient for all of man's, mankind's uses in every civilization throughout history until today. Uh, today, many of our water ecosystems are becoming depleted. We are using more than the amount that replenishes naturally uh, through, the, through the ecosystem uh, process, water cycle. And we are starting to run dry of it for many of those key human and economic uses uh, that we rely upon it for. Given the current practices and technologies, more and more parts of the world, there's simply not enough water available in the replenishing water ecosystems for the world's six and a half billion people, much less the nine billion that we are becoming. And uh, many of those uh, are also becoming meat eaters with middle class uh, diets, which actually uses even far more water than the actual arithmetic increase of the population uh, growth. 
Now, we often like to look back in times of stress to our founding fathers for words of wisdom, and there is one here, too. It comes from Benjamin Franklin, uh, who back in, uh, in Poor Richard's Almanac once uh, wrote, when the well is empty, we learn the worth of water. Well, today, the global well is starting to go empty, and we are starting to learn water's worth. If you come away with nothing else from the talk tonight, I, I do hope at least that it will make you see that water is, um, see it in a way that you've never seen it before, physically and as a vital economic good, and as a critical element also of our, the geopolitics and our national security interests as well. But to start that off, I would like to do so with a little quiz to the audience. And I'd so just, I'm gonna ask you a question, I want you to think about it for a minute. How much fresh water do you think that you personally consume each day? Personally consume. Just think for a moment. It's not just the amount you drink, right? That's just a couple of, uh, just a couple of quarts there that you need to stay alive. Uh, but think about the amount of, that's embedded in the food that you eat. Okay, take number one. Uh, for example, uh, the answer really is 1,000 gallons of water each day. About four tons, because water weighs about eight, eight uh, and a third uh, pounds per gallon. A slice of bread uses 11 gallons of water to produce that, to grow the, the, the grains. Uh, wheat, a pound of wheat is 125 gallons. That's a ton of water. Rice is about two, or two, two to three times more water intensive than that. But when you move up into eating animals, animal products, we move really uh, uh, to a much higher level because the animals themselves, of course, eat the grain before we go and eat the animal. So a hamburger, when you sit down to a hamburger, you're going 634 gallons of water go into that hamburger that you're eating. And if you're really a, a real he-man and you eat one pound steaks, uh, that's 15 tons worth of water going into your body. Um, or perhaps you like yogurt um, and in your breakfast and that's 138 gallons, just to give you a, 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 an idea there. But that's not all, of course, we use water for, uh, we don't just consume, consume it in our bodies, we wear clothes, right? Uh, a cotton shirt, anybody have an idea? 750 gallons for that. A pair of jeans, almost 3,000 gallons. And a pair of shoes, almost 2,000. In fact, if you add in the underwear and the socks, uh, it comes to something like 25 tons of water, 6,000 gallons goes into the clothes that we wear. Now we all know, we're all aware that we use it in the households and we use it for uh, cleaning, uh, for flushing toilets, and uh, maybe even uh, watering the lawn. Uh, that's about 100 to 150 gallons for a typical American uh, family, about half that for a European. Uh, parts of the world, um, uh, other parts of the world where people, do, water is much scarce, uh, they consume the equivalent of two to three low-flow toilet flushes. Uh, is all they have for all their uses uh, for us, two to three uh, flushes is, is that what's what they've got. Now, most of you, I'm almost sure most of you have computers. Um, the little semiconductor chip that you got inside that computer uses 2,000 gallons of an ultra-purified water, eight and a half tons of water. And a, a, a typical semiconductor plant has enough water for a domestic city that, uh, of 50,000 people. So you just get to beginning to, to see the, the realm of what we're beginning to talk about. And then, of course, Virtually every single industrial product uh, that is used uh, uses uh, uh, water on a massive scale, chemicals, steel, food processing, mining, 
just to take one of those is the automobile, has been estimated at 39,000 gallons, 162,000 tons of water to go into your automobile. Now another question, what, what industry or what, what use uses uh, water the most in our, in our society? Does anybody think it's, agriculture is the logical one, it is true in most of the world, but in the industrialized countries it's not. It's, it, it's energy. We use it for thermoelectric plants, uh, use an awful lot of water to, to uh, cool the thermoelectric uh, uh, plants. Now a lot of the water goes back into the rivers and it goes back hopefully been, they've lowered the temperature so it doesn't uh, cause all kinds of environmental havoc. But there is, in, even in this country, we're getting licenses turned down all the time because we don't have enough water in the rivers uh, even to build the, uh, the thermoelectric plants we would like to for, for the cooling purposes. Uh, there are many other uh, ways that we're going to come to in a minute that water and energy are interlinked, but I just wanted to give you, make it clear to you that water is used ubiquitously and it is in fact not just civilization's most critical resource, it is the one that is really indispensable to us and has been through all of history. Uh, and in fact, in, in every age of history, uh, and I do cover that uh, in this, this work of a book is uh, two-thirds history and one-third the lessons from history to, to cover the um, current water crisis, which I'm going to be mainly speaking about tonight. Uh, societies that control and harness those water resources for productive uses and how well they protect it, uh, uh, use those, uh, sorry, those water um, uh, manage water to protect against water's destructive uses like floods and droughts and disease-bearing agents has been a, um, a, 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 a critical element of the prosperity of every civilization uh, throughout history. But I'd like to start tonight with a exploration of the world really by going to one of the dangerous front lines uh, in some depth, if you don't mind, uh, of the world water crisis, and that would be Pakistan. As we know, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton made a rather well-publicized uh, visit uh, there in October, a rather tumultuous visit. And uh, while she was out there generating all those headlines, she was repeatedly being beseeched by the Pakistani leaders about Pakistan's impending water crisis and its agricultural crisis. And of course, she played, paid a great attention to that because not just is Pakistan a critical uh, ally in the war uh, in Afghanistan and in terrorism, because, but, uh, but in its own right, it is a nuclear-armed uh, state, it is uh, Taliban-besieged, and we know it's home uh, to Osama bin Laden. It's a politically fractious state internally, and it is really the ultimate failed state nightmare at the current time for the United States. And that is one of the great dangers from water, uh, freshwater scarcity is going to be, we'll see tonight, are the possibility of failed states. And water scarcity now, they have a population uh, problem in Pakistan. Their uh, population has uh, quintupled since independence in 1947, and it's growing rather fast. It'll be another 30% to 225 million within 15 years or so. Uh, their irrigation system, this is rather common around the world, has, been, uh, has really been uh, decaying poorly. Uh, they need a new drainage system, and they have a totally dysfunctional institutional management. They've really gotten by in the last number of years by, by uh, mining groundwater um, and, and irrigating their uh, crops through, um, with, with groundwater. Now, this was actually encouraged, and it had some beneficial effects um, uh, by the United States in the 1960s. 
Uh, but now they are starting to, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, they are starting to hit bottom in many of those, uh, 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 in many of that, uh, the, the groundwater tables, and the water quality is deteriorating. Now you've got to understand, Pakistan is a country that has one vital river, the Indus River. It's the equivalent like the Nile is to Egypt, the Indus is to, to Pakistan. And that river um, has been fully used. It, it no longer reaches the, uh, the delta any, any longer. Um, and it's, as I say, it is uh, um, uh, serving, it's, it's vital to, the, to that country's uh, um, survival. Um, in addition to the fact that it is overused, it is now facing a situation where it is going to lose about 30% of its flow because its, sor its source is in the Himalayan glaciers, which are melting from, uh, from climate change. Um, so in the next, right now, of course, they're not suffering the, exactly the problem because some of that water is actually melting, is actually cre increasing the amount of water in the river in the very short run, but they're going to face a, a time in the near future <clears throat> where their population is going up by 30 some odd percent and their water uh, availability is going down by about the same amount. And that's about 15 to 20 years off, probably. But it's sort of scarier still because um, they also only have 30 days worth of storage uh, on the Indus River at the current time behind their dams. So if there is a drought, and they've had a drought actually there, they've only got 30 days protection before a crisis would, would come. And if you start to face a declining flow in your rivers, uh, you certainly realize you're going to get there, you could get there pretty fast. Now, the, the problems with the water shortages in Pakistan uh, are setting off internal and external crises around them. Internally, the water first comes through the, uh, the Punjab, which is the, traditionally the wealthier portion of the, uh, the country and or the best politically connected portion. The portions in the south, the Sindhis and then Baluchistan, uh, feel very shortchanged by the amount of water. When there's not enough water comes down, they don't, there's no measurement systems, there's no internal trust built up between these different groups. And so it's, it's intensifying these, in, these regional um, rivalries and animosities and could lead to a potential breakup from within of that state. And it's really causing a bigger problem even now that's becoming an international crisis with, with India. Because the Indus River actually uh, passes through uh, India before it arrives in Pakistan. And the Indians, in fact, in 1947, cut off one of the couple of the tributaries uh, uh, when, uh, to, to, to Pakistan that set off that first war in 1947. They worked up a treaty in 1960 uh, through the World Bank that basically gave three of the tributaries to India and three to Pakistan. These are in the Kashmir, as we know, has its own uh, problems of uh, uh, heated, um, uh, where the troops of th hundreds of thousands of troops are lined up against each other, uh, looking uh, over that contested region. But India now has started to develop some, are starting to build hydropower plants on the tributaries that, are, that belong to Pakistan. Now they're allowed to do this if they don't take flow out of the, out of the river. Pakistan doesn't believe that is fair. Um, but the uh, World Bank 
did did uh, uh, sign an arbiter to this that that uh, said said that they could do so. But now India is doing it not just with one major dam; it is going to do it with about a dozen dams, and that has a major effect because they suddenly now will have storage capacity on the uh, small amount, maybe 30 days or whatever. But it is an it's like an on-off valve in your in your house. You know, you, they control. They could, they could close the water off to Pakistan on that side. They can also, uh, Pakistan is also highly suspicious of India alliance with, with Afghanistan because they're, building, they're helping Afghanistan build a few dams. Now, 20% of the flow of the Indus River comes from the Kabul River. Now, Afghanistan needs that water to develop. But it, what Pakistan sees is that both spigots from the side coming from Afghanistan and the side coming from India are gonna be controlled after the Americans are gone by the Indians. And that is not a very happy scenario. So at the recent summit meeting of the heads of state uh, that were just, was just recently held, the, um, the um, uh, head of, of Pakistan repeatedly brought up accusing the Indians of violating the Indus River Treaty of 1960. Uh, this, this treaty was, um, as I say, this meeting was ostensibly held to try to get past the terrorist attack, if you remember, in Mumbai that was carried out by some um, fundamentalist uh, radical groups in Pakistan. Now, the Pakistani papers are not quite as uh, diplomatic as the, uh, as the, as the president of uh, Pakistan, uh, and they're accusing India openly of water terrorism against them. And the group, the Lashkar group, that actually did carry out the Mumbai attacks has said, thirsty Muslims will drink Indians' blood and we know that they have the capacity to strike inside that country. So we are facing a situation that is scary uh, on that, in, that, in that part of the world. Water very seriously in the center of some of the problems. Um, India has its own, as we know, has its own problems. It is developing the hydropower on that river, uh, those Indus tributaries, because it needs electricity itself. It has electricity shortages. It also has many food shortages. Uh, because it too has even been many ways worse than Pakistan in relying on groundwater that is now beginning to hit bottom. And they are going to become a food importing nation in the next number of years. Now this is one of the, this is going to change the dynamic of the world grain markets in a dramatic way. Um, and prices will become probably more volatile and will go up. And that is, spells lots of troubles for places like the Middle East, which, which imports 50% of its grain uh, in foods today and is going to be rising to 70% because of population pressures of its own. The State Department uh, did respond, and the United States did respond to try to address Pakistan's concerns in a couple of ways. Um, we did uh, pass a $7.5 billion five-year aid package recently, and the largest and most urgent um, uh, part of that was addressed to water irrigation issues, um, also to hydropower and to storage, because when there's a low flow in the river, of course, you don't have hydropower. And that's why their plants don't run 24 hours a day. They can only run 12 hours a day a lot of the times. But that by, but that by alone is, is not quite enough. But there is something encouraging. One bit of encouraging news is that for the, for the very, very first time, the United States has begun to recognize that global water scarcity is a vital objective of US national security interests. And it has begun to integrate uh, water scarcity into the highest level processes of State Department policymaking and planning. Uh, publicly, this was a speech given by Hillary Clinton on March 22nd, 
World Water Day was the signal of this. It had been going on for several uh, weeks and months before. And I just do want to quote from her speech because it, it's more persuasive than just listening to me say it. She, after calling water a matter of national security integral to the success of many of our foreign policy initiatives, and she linked it correctly to the eventual outcomes of Afghanistan and Iraq, which are also very water scarce, she concluded, it, water, represents one of the great diplomatic and development opportunities of our time. It's not every day that you find an issue where effective diplomacy and development will allow you to save millions of lives, feed the hungry, empower women, advance our national security interests, protect the environment, and demonstrate to billions of people that the United States cares, cares about you and your welfare. Water is that issue. So at least we can begin to say that our State Department, at, for, for, for whatever that is, for whatever leverage they're going to be able to bring to the world problems, does get it about water. That water is, that freshwater scarcity is emerging as the key driving fulcrum, one of the key driving fulcrums of world geopolitics and economic development and environment and public health. And it's creating a whole new calculus for our strategic uh, challenges for policymakers. I, I, I've thought of the coda, it should, should have named the speech, it takes a village, but a village needs water. But I wasn't <laughs> writing it, so. One of part of that new calculus, of course, is got to do with uh, climate change. Uh, and frankly, when you think, whenever you think of climate change, you should automatically think of water. Because really, climate change is the water crisis in hyperdrive. Um, it, it, when, when, when water, uh, climate change wreaks its damages, how? By, by exacerbating uh, 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 events like floods and droughts, uh, um, melting glaciers, uh, rising, um, rising seawater or, steam or, or, or uh, sea surges. Uh, these come out unpredictable and out of time storms that overwhelm the existing water infrastructures that societies have built up both to, for harnessing water's advantages and for protecting us against its destructive, um, uh, um, uh, destructive powers. And the people who really think about this, and there are increasingly more of them, but not so many, uh, connect the dots further and realize that water is also inextricably linked with the production of energy and with the growing and the processing of food. And in fact, that you really, they, they are linked together like a 3D game of chess. Uh, where every move affects, it changes the matrix of the others. And when you add the umbrella of climate change uh, above it, it, it sort of becomes a rubric cube of, of policymaking because what maybe look good on the one for, 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 for an energy purpose may consume a lot of water, and there's a lot of that, or it may uh, cause climate change effects that you don't have. So these policymaking decisions are now are getting very complicated, but you've got to think, start thinking about them not separately, but as interlinked. The freshwater scarcity crisis really presents two great challenges to us. Um, the very first is one that I would call a water ecosystem crisis itself. Many of our very vital water ecosystems uh, now are being exhausted, depleted, and must require water themselves, environmental flows we call them, to be able to be able to continue to give us the life-sustaining um, uh, benefits that they do do. Uh, we have about 70 major rivers around the world are like the Indus. They, they, they no longer reach their, their deltas to, to nourish them anymore. 
um, and they uh, and see and some and some of those lands that were very productive for for agriculture are are being uh, invaded by sea uh, seawater as well. Um, our groundwater tables are being depleted seriously in North China, in in India, Pakistan. We know here even in California, in the Central Valley, we're we're, we're going we're going low in some places. We're going beyond the point that those uh, ecosystems will be able to continue to provide the water that we've been using. They're really like going into your savings account, frankly, and 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 using them uh, for for current expenditures. Uh, our wetlands, half the wetlands of the Earth, are gone. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Himalayan glaciers, in particular, which are the source of virtually every major river in uh, the um, in in uh, Asia. Are, are melting very fast, much faster. The uh, temperatures are, are much higher there than they are at the lower latitudes. We, we, have a, in, we have an ecosystem crisis. Water has been really used for human purposes for four reasons. Uh, uh, that has been for energy production, for transportation, for our uh, economic uses, and for generating power. But today there is a fifth use. We need it for the ecosystems themselves to be able to maintain their sustainability, and that's vital. Um, at the same time, however, we are finding that not, uh, the water scarcity is, is a bit uneven around the world because it's a function of population and of natural distribution of water, available water resources. And what's happening is that in many parts where world society is polarizing increasingly into water haves and have-nots. And freshwater scarcity is a chief reason why three and a half billion people, three and a half billion people, are expected to be living in countries uh, that will not be able to feed themselves within about 20 years. And that's gonna include, as I say, India and Pakistan and possibly even China. Um, internet and uh, the countries like Saudi Arabia, which, which for a long time were, were doing something really crazy. They were, they were mining their aquifer under the ground to produce wheat in the desert to protect themselves to have the sec food security, or what they imagined was food security against the possible uh, embargo, counter embargo to their, to their oil embargoes, at a, at a cost that was five times what they could have purchased that wheat on world markets for. Well, they've finally given up that because their aquifer is getting close to the bottom. And uh, they've been now scrambling, like other countries, to, to lease cropland in other countries. And where are they going? Well, they're going, among other places, they're gone to Ethiopia and to the Sudan along the Nile. Now the Nile is uh, a terribly overexploited river itself, uh, and we, there is an ongoing negotiation right now that it will imminently be announced um, to try to at least share in a, um, a compact to at least manage in, in, in a cooperative manner the Nile, but it's going to put enormous stress on on Egypt and Egypt's very, uh, which has been a anomaly in history. It has been a downriver state that has been able to monopolize the largest share of the water. And uh, that is no longer tenable when you've got state people upriver in Ethiopia and Sudan, millions of people dying of starvation. That's not tenable. And these countries have now, through, through are able to um, finally raise the, the money and build the facilities that they need. China, by the way, supplying many of the dams that are being built now in Ethiopia and the Sudan. So uh, this is going to change your, ge your, your geopolitics. As, as countries begin to lease cropland in other countries, that's going to change their system of, of alliances. That's going to be their food security is going to become number one. Um, countries that have been unable to grow 
their own food or reliably import it at inexpensive prices have often collapsed in history. And uh, there's a long line of that going back even to when Rome lost uh, control of, of the ability to import enough food from, from, from Egypt uh, back in uh, ancient times. Uh, some fa water failing states like water famished Yemen and Somalia have been uh, hotbeds, fertile ground for the international terrorist groups to take root and also the pirates on the key shipping lanes. The fact that Israel gets two-thirds of its water from lands that they won in the Six-Day War in 1967 and doles out about a third, the one-third that comes from the West Bank aquifer to uh, Palestinians in a one-to-four sharing ratio uh, that really gives the Palestinians just a little, just enough to drink but not much more than that to develop uh, for agriculture or other purposes, sort of adds to the, uh, the grievance of stolen water to an already volatile situation and a complicated Middle East um, peace process. I, I will add, hasten to add, that Israel is building a number of desalination plants that will, in fact, um, produce more water than the amount that they're taking from the West Bank aquifer and might become actually a, a vehicle for making peace in that region one day, we can certainly hope. Uh, the fact that there are a billion people who lack access to safe drinking water and two and a half billion to basic sanitation poses contagious health risks uh, and, human, and also humanitarian risks uh, to, to, to everybody. And it's a formidable obstacle, just an enormous obstacle to economic development, uh, both uh, seen in um, Haiti, by the way. Uh, in Kenya, where I, were, I went uh, to help lay some water pipes, a couple of miles of water pipes, to bring water from a, from a well to a waterless village, people were, were having to walk th you know, two to three to four hours every day, women, children, and, and even the men. Uh, this is time they were not going to school. They're not going to be able to do productive work. I mean, this is a, this, you can't even imagine how much of a handicap it is uh, if you have to lug eight, remember, what are eight and a half pounds per gallon, and you're going to need at least five gallons minimum you know, for each person. That's 40 pounds, just carrying that two to three miles a day for one person, much less your whole family. Just think about it if you had to do that. One of the problems, of course, of climate change um, is going to become dislocations from these water shocks, like these floods and mudslides and the droughts. These have already driven millions of people from their homes in India, Bangladesh, Syria, and Iraq, and of course in Yemen, and they are crowding often into cities that also can't really support them. These are expected to create 150 million what we call climate, what people call climate change refugees, I really call them water refugees, uh, within about only a decade. And this is a category that did not even exist under, or does not even exist under the UN uh, um, nomenclatures. Uh, as water runs scarce and population surge, the pressure is growing in the world's 263 shared river basins and the countless shared groundwater uh, basins uh, to keep coming up with positive sum incentives to cooperate rather than to fight over the water resources. And the upriver states really have the least incentive to cooperate um, in these cases because they do control the on-off switch. And uh, the ones, they, they really do need to be engaged. The ones that uh, Turkey, for example, needs to especially be engaged, it is the Middle East's new water superpower, both because it has lots of you know, other various water uh, resources internally, but also both the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates 
um, start there. And they dictate the flows that go down to Syria and Iraq. Iraq very much used to be the way that um, uh, Egypt is today, a downriver state that controlled 70-80% of the water. Well, that's completely reversed. They only get something like 15% of the water today. These countries have built on their, um, they've built dams and have hydropower plants and other water projects that are going to consume 150% of the water of the Euphrates River if they were all enacted. That's obviously impossible. And it's right now the upriver state, Turkey, who decides how much gets to go downstream. Uh, China controls Tibet. The Tibetan Plateau is the source of all of these great water resources of, of Southeast Asia, one of the very poorest and most overcrowded uh, water-stressed parts of the world. And they are building dams and, uh, on those, on those, uh, in that plateau on many of those rivers, including the Mekong, uh, because they need, they, they need it for their internal, their very rapid internal growth uh, that they, they believe they need to maintain. They have not yet, they don't really cooperate with the people downstream. And we are going to be hearing, and I, I guarantee you, in the next number of years about problems downstream uh, and, and a lot of blame being put on China uh, for diverting uh, water resources. In fact, uh, that's already started. Now, Turkey, alarmingly, Turkey and China are two of three states who voted against, only two, three states voted against the 1997 UN convention that said upriver states should behave in such a way that don't harm downriver states. Seems a fairly innocuous uh, thing, but China and Turkey voted against that, um, that convention. Uh, the third, if you're curious, is Burundi on the Nile, but I don't think they can achieve their aspirations uh, there. Um, now, for water from China, really critical. China has one-fifth the amount of water resources per person than we do in the United States. Water is Chinese, China's Achilles heel economically. If China is to become a, um, a, a great economic superpower and continue this breakneck growth that it has, it is going to have to figure out how to solve what is an enormous water scarcity problem and an, and an equally enormous water pollution problem. They are facing a potential environmental collapse from a number of sources. Water is one of them. Uh, they've had to shut factories in the north, north part of China in particular. has always been water scarce throughout history. Uh, and now it is an, a region where they have great resources, uh, like coal and, and, and natural resources, but they can't fully exploit all of them because they are very water intensive. They've had to shut for abandon a big coal liquefaction project, for example, in 2008 up there. Now, much of the water is so badly polluted that they can't even use it for agriculture, which uh, is something that you, you, in many parts of the world you can, in fact, do. do. Um, I would say Deng Xiaoping's uh, famous joke about having to move Beijing uh, to the south because they don't have enough water um, may in fact come to pass if the, this massive south to north water project, that, which is the largest water project on the earth currently, uh, doesn't uh, succeed. They are doing in effect what California has done by moving all the water from the north to the south, but they're doing it in, in, in th through three, three pronged aqueduct over mountains, under rivers, on a, on a scale that dwarfs anything that we've ever seen here in California. Uh, finally, I would like to say that the uh, other people who are getting kind of alarmed by the water crisis are the uh, corporate leaders at uh, Davos and some of the big business leaders, uh, transnational businesses. Uh, 
they're, of course, concerned about these food bubbles bursting uh, in, in, in various countries. But really what they're worried about is that their own transnational corporate supply lines are in jeopardy, uh, potentially, uh, from, um, uh, from, from water shortages in various countries. And also backlashes. Coca-Cola lost its license in India, part of India, uh, when it was perceived to be competing with groundwater with the locals. Um, and so there is a whole, um, a, a very strong social, what they call a social equity movement is sometimes called, but really it's a, it's a, a corporate backlash movement that really is, uh, threatens, in fact, even the, 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 world, the free world trading system if we don't get our arms around it. Um, now, I'm going to uh, skip through, uh, basically, the world history uh, portion of this, uh, um, but I, because I've, unfortunately, uh, I'm going to leave it open to questions. I would say, though, that there, water has always been associated in world history with, with great turning points, from the agricultural revolution, where we learned to harness water for, for irrigation in Mesopotamia and Egypt, to the industrial revolution where the seminal invention was the steam engine. Uh, in the current, there have been great canals from, from Erie and, uh, and, and Suez, Panama. But in the current 20th century, the great invention was the, the great um, the dams. They were hydropower, irrigation, flood control. And they were all started really here in the United States with Hoover. There are now 45,000 of them around the world, giant dams, half of them in China. The largest, of course, there as well, Three Gorges. And these were, these were important facilitators of the Green Revolution, which required an uh, intensive amount of water to go along with the fertilizer and the hybridization. Uh, now, this Green Revolution was, of course, uh, one of the reasons why we did not see mass starvation as population grew from a billion and a, and a billion and a half to six billion in the 20th century. But of course, uh, it all brings us full circle, because the success of one Technology in one era brings on the challenges of the next. And today, uh, our, as we are, population continues to rise and the water demand continues to rise, uh, we now face a fresh water scarcity uh, problem. Um, there really are two choices in how to deal with this. One is to improve our existing uh, productivity of our existing water resources. And in fact, we are so inefficient in many of our uses that we could probably do that. But it's uh, politically really hard to do, as you begin just to see in, in here in California, just uh, the debate that went on uh, a couple of whatever it was with, uh, with Governor Schwarzenegger trying to, uh, to, to come, up, come up with a water reform plan. Uh, the other is to try to buy time uh, and hope that some kind of a technology will, a silver bullet technology will come, like desalination, uh, genetically modified crops, um, maybe some of this recycling uh, that's been going on and will bail us out as technology often has. Um, the way you buy time though is you, you, drill, you drill your groundwater. You begin to build these massive transcontinental um, uh, aqueduct systems to try to move water from the southern part of China to where they, I think they have a little extra water to the north. But it runs out in the south too eventually. Uh, the, the sad part is that none of these technologies today look like they are going to come in time uh, for the, um, to, to, to bail us all out of the problem. So the lesson of history really is, uh, well, Boutros Ghali, uh, who used to be the uh, head of the United Nations 25 years ago, had made this famous prediction that the wars of the 21st century are going to be fought over water. 
That hasn't happened. Um, in fact, more, there's been much more cooperation over water than there has been actual conflict. But there are many reasons to think that the future will not be like the past. And I do think uh, very clearly after looking at this, uh, look some of the subject closely, that failed states are likely to be the, the greater risk than actual outright water wars. But those failed states lead to that whole chain reaction of, of, of problems that can help trigger wars, economic uh, crises, um, terrorism and humanitarian crises, um, et cetera. Um, the lesson, too, of history is that the that societies that have been able to make the great water breakthroughs have often been those that have, that have, that have risen, uh, and those that have failed have declined in the past. And so there's a change in the geopolitical order because of uh, water, if you, for, for, for water usage. Um, the United States actually finds itself in a position, an interesting position, where we are well-placed to be a, wa a world water superpower in the 21st century. We have our water scarcity, as you all well know, but in comparison to the rest of the world, we are water wealthy, as are many, uh, or as are some of the other industrial regions. Uh, we have 8% of the uh, water, only 4% of the population of the world. And we have an opportunity in this, in if, if we would go ahead and work in our economic and our political self-interest to really pull, put on a full court pressure on, uh, a full court press on trying to improve our, the productivity of our existing water resources. Figure out how to use it in an environmentally sustainable way, because it's got to be done environmentally sustainable way, and make those uh, adjustments uh, the way that certain societies else, we, the models exist. Uh, Australia has done it, uh, for example, in the agricultural field. Israel recycles virtually all its water and runs a dual piping system where the, where the non-potable water is used for agriculture. It's on a national level. These things are not high tech. They're, they're political problems, largely, uh, to do. Now, we've had some improvement in the United States. Uh, for the first three quarters of the 20th century, water use grew three times faster than, than our population. Since the 1975-1980, it has actually flatlined or declined a little bit while our GDP went up and our population grew by 30%. That coincided largely with the Clean Water Act, passage of the Clean Water Act, which put a cost on, on the water for those that it were regulated. What, and those included uh, many of the power plants that we were discussing. What they did was immediately say, water's an economic, has an economic value, and began to figure out ways to use it more efficiently. And man, they really did. Uh, it's, it's, it, it can really be done once you recognize it as a key economic um, resource. So I, in closing, I would just say that these are, look, our, a lot of our politicians are very tough when it comes to uh, talking about taking on Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. Uh, but when it comes to mentioning the agribusiness lobby or other tough uh, internal lobbies, they sort of faint dead away. Uh, it's going to take that kind of a political uh, leadership to be able to get our arms around this. If we do it, it's well in our benefit. We grow economically because it frees up water. If, when you use it more productively, it, it'll, it'll accelerate growth, growth directly and through the other uses. It'll, it'll be able to give us an opportunity to feed and produce goods for a water-thirsty water, water world that is going to be increasingly demanding it, and will give us political leverage in the, uh, in the international sphere as well, because we are a provider of many of the things that people are going to be needing. Why don't we do it? Thank you.
Thank you very much for such a very um, informative talk tonight. My name is Andrew J. Gross, and I'm with the United Nations uh, Committee on Global Sustainability. I want to ask you, you brought up some very, very important facts about this crisis worldwide, and I'm wondering what can we do as individual, individuals to help with that problem? I think, I think the most, I think this is, this is going to be a, 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 a solution to the problem is not going to be a top-down solution, because water, everywhere it presents itself, presents itself in unique set of circumstances. And everywhere it's a local phenomenon. So it starts with being cognizant, I think, uh, we should be very cognizant of our own water around us and how we use it, where it comes from, um, and also therefore making our, where we, we are lucky enough, like in the United States, to have um, a representative government to make sure our representatives know that this is a concern of ours. And, and, and for example, we should also be getting angry sometimes uh, we should be getting angry that our that our own drinking water in this country has become increasingly contaminated, not cleaner, uh, by the by the failure to enforce uh, the um, Clean Water uh, Act's uh, regulation through the EPA in the last uh, decade or so. Um, of course, we can be interested at at uh, you can get yourself involved if you if you wish in international in 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 some of the things like. Um, uh, some of the what we call WASH groups, uh, water, sanitation, and hygiene, in helping people in other parts of the world uh, be able to, to get access to safe drinking water. There are many good organizations that you can uh, work uh, to, to, uh, do, to do that. But, but largely, I think the answer is that we really need to be, pay attention ourselves uh, to our own, inform ourselves about our own water, and then let it then talk to our representatives, push for the kind of changes that need to be made. Once we begin to enter into our mind system, then I think, then they'll become the political, you know, responsiveness that that will begin to come. It's going to percolate. It's not going to come, you know, all at once. But but just as you begin to see companies advertising themselves as green, that was unthinkable, uh, you know, 20 years ago. That was not a it was not a marketing advantage. Companies today are starting to look at their water footprints. They're starting to measure their water footprints. Encourage that. That's a great thing. Let's not let them just, you know, whitewash it. But let's really look at the, what they're, what, what's going into that calculation and make sure that it's that it's that it's that it's um, substantial. Um, but it needs to be, I think, a, a, a ground-up uh, awareness is the is the critical element. Hello, I'm uh, Professor David Jackson from UCLA. I'm a seismologist, and in California. The academic community, the state government, the federal government, and a lot of uh, private companies have a very well-organized and reasonably well-funded plan to estimate seismic hazard over 30-year time intervals. Anything like that in California for water? Hmm. I'm going to have to confess some ignorance on that. Uh, I don't know the answer. If they're, if they're, uh, when you say decide, when you're saying to to measure the, I mean, the water is studied, you know, well, uh, but there is also. Uh, by the way, the USGS is a, is a great organization, um, but it has we have not done a study. Uh, the GAO, in fact, f reported this of of our United States water resources, total water resources, in something like thirty some odd years. Part of the reason is we know we're using a lot of groundwater, and a lot of the interests uh, that don't want groundwater to start to be regulated are have uh, have tried to discourage that uh, that process. Uh, hi, my name is Kevin Geary. Um, I'm just wondering, um, 
what role do you think desalinization uh, will play uh, in, in the uh, water situation and specifically, you know, what technological barriers are there to desalinization being more widespread uh, to address this problem? Desalination has, the costs have come way down uh, in the last number of years. Um, <clears throat> dramatically, since the 1990s, uh, there are plants, as I mentioned, Israel is going uh, great guns with it. Um, Cyprus, Singapore, uh, there, there are many countries that are, are doing it. You're, you're starting to do it here in California as well. Uh, the, the, large, the, largest problems, the largest problems that we see with desal are the following. Um, first, it is very energy intensive. Uh, uh, as it's currently uh, conceived, and a lot of that is uh, fossil fuel uh, burning as well. Coming back to that nexus of, of, wa of water, energy, and, uh, and climate change. Um, and so uh, that's one thing. The, the other thing of the, where there has been made progress is on some of the, um, uh, the membrane technology has also improved uh, dramatically and is one of the reasons that costs have, have also begun to come down. But once you get the water now, once you get, let's say you can desal, do the desalination of the water at a cost that you feel is, is worthwhile, and, and that really is going to be, since it is pretty high, it's going to be mainly for really important uses. You're not, it, it, not, not for agriculture at this stage. It would be used for drinking purposes when you really have to have it. Um, but you still have to transport it once you get it onto the land. And that's, again, very energy, energy and, and, and costly. So there's a, a feeling that it's going to be used mainly in, in, in selected areas inland, but mostly along uh, coastal areas. By the way, could end up, if it does make that big breakthrough, shifting geopolitical geopol uh, balances towards the seashores and away from <laughs> upriver states, counterbalancing some of that uh, force. Um, so those are, are, are two of the, uh, 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 the, major, the major limitations. The other thing is that the, it's a great, it seems like a great technology, and I think it will get there. I, I do think it will get there um, from what I hear. But the, but the build-out is going to take a long time. It's the, build, the amount of, of, of desal capacity is so small today that for even, if it, even if we were to go and say, look, um, everybody was going to, the breakthrough came tomorrow, by the time you got around to building all of these things, uh, to, to have enough volume to solve part of your water problems would take too long before to be able to solve uh, the crisis in many parts of the world. So it's not going to be the silver bullet that people uh, hope it can become. Pamela DeLisa, I'm just wondering what are the top three countries for um, doing research in manufacturing, uh, processing, and extraction technologies for water? Thank you. Well, I, I think that, that, that those are usually left to private sector decisions. Uh, some of the transnational corporations use an awful lot of water and um, look at it. Nest, you know, the Nestle, the food, uh, Coca-Cola uses a lot, Anheuser-Busch on the beer side, uh, the Rio Tinto on the, on the, on the mineral extraction side. The, the, all these, these, these transnational corporations are, are looking at these, um, these issues. Um, the semiconductor industry, of course, needs a lot of water and uh, needs it to be ultra purified. So they've sometimes come up with creative solutions in, in some areas. I don't know that you can put it on a, say, a country per se is, is doing it. I, I think that that's pretty spread out around the world depending on, on where it is. Ch you know, China is doing some innovative things. Uh, the, but the United States and Europe is, parts of Europe are doing innovative things. So I, I'm not sure I can answer the question in terms of, of countries. Uh, thank you. My name is Miguel Luna, Executive Director of an organization by the name of Urban Semillas. 
And well, my com one of the comment to the professor is that there is some studies uh, happening okay. uh, through NASA looking uh, satellite, seeing how much water is in, uh, underneath the Central Valley specifically. Yes. My question is, if in your book you touch on uh, the responsibilities of corporations currently, uh, Nestle, uh, uh, and, and what role do they play as we move into the future of you know the the mining and selling of water? Yeah, uh, I, I, look, I think the, there is no a report on the story. Um, we know that there have been places um, where, where um, there have been, well, Bolivia was one case where a, a, a company was given a contract to manage the city's water and the prices went way up and there were riots and people, a person was killed as well from that. Uh, that was rather foolish of both the company and the country itself. Uh, to manage uh, the water in that way. But there are basically water should be managed according to, th to three principles, I believe, that we sometimes call the three E's. Uh, that's as an, economic, um, as an economic good with efficiency, um, as for environmental purposes, and for social equity uh, purposes. It, there is no reason in the world why there should not, by every person uh, on the planet should be able to get 13 gallons of water for basically free, which is the amount of water that is most people think that we need for, for minimal use, for, for basic uh, healthy purposes. There isn't plenty of water to, to deliver that. Uh, there are almost very few places, well, with a few exceptions, that couldn't provide that kind of water. But there is no consensus um, about how, uh, on these three E's, uh, at the current time. It's a pretty much of a free-for-all, uh, while the Western countries like the World Bank and, and such sort of do look at those issues. China is going out and building dams all over the place without any concern uh, for that, and they're building it in countries that invite them in and want them to um, develop the dams without regard to the dislocation problems, for example, that dams have caused. Um, and, and there's good and there's bad in it. I mean, the good part is that, we, you know, the World Bank and the Western practices don't necessarily have the, the right answer either. Uh, and Brazil, for example, was turned down on a number of, of um, uh, developments that they want to do with genetically modified uh, food and, and, and other things that were considered bad practices, but have turned out to be very successful. So it's, 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 it's difficult in the world because there is no, there is no, um, it's a, it's a free for all. Uh, you know, right now everybody is trying to go out and, and, and get the resources uh, as best they can. And they're not paying attention necessarily to the best interests of all the people in the countries. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of misery and social um, uh, dislocation going to continue as a result of it. Uh, it's not in the, in, the, in the corporation's best interest they are, uh, because they are, if they are perceived to be the bad guys, they're going to be kicked out. And, it, and so therefore, there is a movement, at least among those people, let's say, at the Davos World Economic Forum group, are trying to say, hey guys, we need to, set, we need to set, create a series of best practices. And there are programs going along um, uh, by Nature Conservancy and others who are trying to give you a seal of approval for certain practices uh, that you do do. But it's, it's really in early, very early, early days. Uh, my name is Sean Green. Uh, going back to China a few years ago, they uh, started practicing some cloud seeding and uh, climate control attempts. Was there any... Um, were there any advantages to this on a small scale that could be extrapolated to a larger scale closed system that we could create? Or what were the advantages and disadvantages of that practice? Again, I'm not an expert on that subject, but everything I've read about cloud seeding is that I think we think that it's not that 
I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, a, fun, a funny, funny science. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think it's got a lot of um, widespread support, but I know people do it, and, uh, and um, so maybe it does work. I, look, I, I know a, a friend of mine uh, swore to me that he couldn't find water on his land in, in Italy, and he brought in a guy with a dousing stick, and, and, he, found, and he found water right away. So, uh, you know, <laughs> there might be something there. Hi, my name is Lydia Marcos from USC's Master of Public Diplomacy program. Um, I had a question regarding what you were saying about a bottom-up approach uh, to water and your specific example about villages. Um, and I was wondering if you could give, uh, or if you have already in the past, a specific strategy um, from a different perspective. Um, all of us here are obviously in the US, uh, but for Sub-Saharan Africa, or even countries like you mentioned, um, Egypt, to give a perspective um, and to make water a priority for people within the community, what would an argument be or even a strategy to really make that a priority for them? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, every, every place is, is again, you've got to look at it, the difference. But I'll tell you what, it keeps, everybody, I, the people I speak to who have worked their lives in this field, trying just to bring safe drinking water and sanitation to the world's people, they're very frustrated because there are a billion people without fresh, uh, safe access to, to drinking water. Now, why should that be? That, that's not in the interests of any, any government, you know? I mean, they, even with, I mean, every, everybody would legitimate, the first test of legitimacy is, can you deliver water to people, water and food, right? So, so it's, it's not a, a problem necessarily of, of, of ill will, you know, or, or of, 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 of not recognizing the problem, right? They might not, some of them might not care, but, but for the most part, people would want to do it. Uh, so the people, what they find is that they build uh, sanitary facilities or they build a water system in place, and then they go back 10 to 15 years from now, and the thing has fallen apart. It hasn't, it's not been sustained, it's not been maintained. So now the emphasis is what incentives can be built to try to have to give incentives to somebody or a community to make this work, so for example, uh, that this this is showing where the water problem really is very deeply a social organization uh, uh, a problem, um, and 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 you've got to get into the, it's got to be adapted to the to the needs uh, and of, of the of each community. Um, there was a case in um, a famous case that's actually worked in Brazilian slums where the water. Um, uh, authorities would, would, would pipe in the water and then the inspectors would come and read the meters or whatever and try to collect the bills. Well, they were, you know, basically killed <laughs> and they stopped going, right? And so the, the system collapsed and it didn't work anymore after a while. So they, they decided, well, let's instead, let's bring bulk water to us to this slum area and build not full-grade pipes like modern big full standard pipes, but, but substandard pipes that are very easy to repair. They might break apart, they might break apart more easily, but they can be repaired by the local plumbers. And the government just said, we're going to bring the water there, You're going to, we're going to charge you a low amount of, of, of money because it's the bulk rate, and then you guys figure out among your, in your own community about how to collect the money you know, whether it's the widow down the street pays it or somebody else pays it, uh, you know, uh, the, the hoodlums or whoever it was, uh, for, the, for that water service, you, you guys maintain the pipes. And it seems to have worked because it adapted to a, a, a social reality that, that, that was more functional. The government didn't need to send in the, uh, the, water, um, the water inspectors who were terrified to go back there. And uh, 
this has been mimicked in, in other parts of uh, the world. So um, it, it, it's very much of a, um, of a local uh, phenomenon. In Kenya, where I went, it worked because there was a, a social uh, a structure in place. There was the big man of the region, uh, or a big man who was, they called the chairman. Um, and there were a couple of other authority figures uh, that, that you could uh, work through. Um, and, the com and the community was a pretty vibrant uh, community where people worked together uh, for building even uh, mud uh, dams and reinforcing mud dams. So um, that, that, that was something that, that did work. But, but there are places where it doesn't, and, and obviously too many. Alan Zortian, um, I, at one point you said that the, uh, the, the United States or perhaps the American continent seemed to have, naturally have a, a lot of water or good water resources. I don't know if that's what you meant, but yes. it, as opposed to China. And it made me think about the fact that we've experienced significant um, financial mismanagement to the point where we might, some things I've read say we're going to go into, a, become a third world country. But I'm just wondering if our, the strength that we have in our water resources could somehow counteract the f financial mismanagement that seems to be taking us towards disaster at this point. Well, well for, first of all, I'd say that China has, actually, interestingly, China has almost the amount of uh, renewable uh, water resources that the United States does in to totality, but they've got such a population, such a large, larger population that on a per capita basis, they have only one-fifth the amount. That's where the population factor, you've got to keep adding that in there. Um, look, I, I believe that part of the solution to, to the water problem is that we, we, do need to mar we do need to let the market forces start to operate in the, in the water sector. It is the most politically subsidized and mismanaged and therefore misallocated uh, 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 resource uh, probably of any valuable resource on the planet. Um, obviously, it, it can't be a total free market in water uh, for, for, for reasons uh, that you're going to have to say that people have to drink water and poor people have to have a certain amount of water to drink. Um, but you can do many things that, that allow market forces to operate. Tiered pricing is, it seems to be something that seems to, to work where large volume users pay a lot more for the water. Uh, giving them an, an incentive to um, economize and find up, come up with innovations, um, and giving at the at the very low low uh, water users, uh, low volume water users like you and I, uh, presumably, um, uh, that you know we we pay a, a, a nominal amount for for our basic needs because we're using it for drinking and such. Um, but the answer is yes. I mean, I don't know about the financial. Uh, there are in Australia today. There is a. A, a water market that is so that the government has worked on to help develop. The water rights are traded freely. There's, they trade it over cell phones by the farmers, um, and they uh, they have helped to take a river basin that lost 70 percent, 70 percent of its water in the Murray Darling River Basin because of the terrible drought they just went through, and they were able to keep their agricultural production at the same level uh, that they had before the drought. They're different crops. They're not the same. They're higher-valued crops. Um, but they were able to get an, an enormous productivity gain from that process. And the market uh, works well. And they've even begun to do, and which is what I think we need to do, is to, is to ground all of the market forces in a system that sort of works towards ecosystem sustainability. So that they say, well, if you're going to take water out for irrigation, that's going to create a certain amount of salts uh, in the soil problem. And you need to find uh, salt credits. And the people are planting trees that take some of the salt 
out of the out of the soils uh, can sell their uh, their 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 uh, those credits uh, to the people that need to buy them. I mean, there the one great challenge that I mean, I'm an economic journalist by 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 training, if you will, over the years, is that water, that we've that more that free markets have never have treated the environment in a way that is like a free a free resource to everybody. It's like, you know, uh, you 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 can pollute freely. It's like throwing garbage in your neighbor's yard. I mean, you know, and, and who's going to clean it up? That's what's happening in, in a lot of the, um, the groundwater that just rushes off with all the agrochemicals in it. It's going down to cities downstream that they, they have to spend the money to clean it up. And it's still getting out into the ocean where it's now sitting and creating these terrible dead zones. So that, 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 that doesn't work. You need to begin to factor in the costs of, 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 of maintaining the ecosystem in a healthy manner. And if that can be done, and, it, and it's starting to be done through regulations, which is a crude way of doing it, um, then then the the cost of cleanup becomes a market becomes integrated into the market system, and then market systems are great at at sorting these things out. And market systems are great, by the way, in history also at at, at dealing with problems at a, a tailoring problem, tailor, tailoring solutions to local problems. You know, when 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 there's a a cookie cutter sort of solution that is required, you know, governments have been pretty decent at doing that, right? But when, but when, you, when it requires, as water does, to measure the, the very particular situations uh, that every, every uh, region and every locality faces, uh, you're going to need individuals on the ground working on that, and that's going to work best in a market system. Hi. First of all, thank you for a topic or a talk on a very interesting and important topic. Robert Worth is my name. I have a question. As I'm sure you're fairly aware, there's a pretty, at times, vociferous debate about treating water as a commodity or an economic good versus tr governing water through the idea of water as a human right. Now, based on sort of your lauding of the Clean Water Act and, and also your answer to the last question, talking about the market and its ability to regulate or help us govern water, Am I correct in assuming that you're advocating for an approach that, that treats water as a, as a good, as an economic good? And if that's the case, where is sort of the, is there room for governing water as a human right as well? And how do we recognize water as a human right if we govern through the market? Yeah, the, the answer is the same, the three E's that I was referring to before. Uh, and the tiered pricing can certainly work to do that. Uh, there's no reason why the water can't be, for the first 13 gallons or so, can't be uh, free or cost a negligible amount of money uh, for the uh, for the um, for the what we call the human right to, to water the 13 gallons. Um, uh, so yes, I think water has to be treated as an economic uh, good and should be treated as an economic good, but it doesn't preclude uh, at all uh, treating it also as a uh, as a human right. I, I just don't see that there's a, um, a, a necessarily inherent. Uh, a contradiction between one and the other. I think they can coexist. Hi, I have a question. I was wondering um, who in the United States would be in charge of regulating the efficiency of water in factories? For example, we have fuel economy standards for motor vehicles. Um, that's done by the EPA. What agencies would be in charge of getting some kind of water efficiency in manufacturing proce processes? And my name's Allison. You guys are pushing the envelope of things that I know here. They, look, water is, is, not, is not centrally regulated in the United States. I mean, it's, it's spread out over a, a bunch of uh, agencies. Uh, I don't, I mean, water efficiency has, I think they've gone down to some associations or looking at shower heads and things of that sort. If you're looking at large factories, I, uh, 
I don't think there's uh, anybody particularly looking at water efficiency as a, um, as a in terms of regulation. Um, there are products that have that have standards that have been regulated. Sometimes environmental groups have often played a role um, in, and, and we're beginning to see the development of certain stakeholder. We didn't get to talk about that, but this is a very positive thing. Uh, certain stakeholder uh, groups begin to uh, uh, come together um, uh, in things like on, on rivers. Uh, you, you see uh, the, farm, the farm groups coming together with the environmental groups, with the, the native Indian groups, for example, if you're in the Northwest. Um, uh, various industrial groups or power plants that use it. And they're sitting around trying to figure out, well, how do we manage the resource? Um, I imagine that, that you're beginning to see, in, even in buildings like this one, uh, there, are, there are beginning to say there are certain standards that we think are good for the environment. Uh, and the same thing is happening through with, um, with, let's say, low flush toilets, which were regulated by, uh, I think, even an active I'm not sure if Congress did it, but it was certainly done state by state, and maybe even Congress did it as well. Um, but it's really pretty, as far as I understand, I think it's, it's either piecemeal or not at all. Thank you.